And I would text photos from my flip phone of like sunsets and different street art pieces I would see. And my boyfriend at the time bought me a like digital point and shoot camera for Christmas one year. And I loved it. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm chatting with Conrad Benner. Conrad is the creator of Streets Department, an online platform that highlights street art and includes a photo blog, a podcast, and an Instagram with over 140,000 followers. In this episode, you'll hear how documenting street art wasn't always the plan for Conrad, but once a life-changing bike accident forced him to commute by foot, he began noticing the overflow of public art around him. And so he began learning. About the street art scene, about the rules, about the people, about the ethics, about who the artists are. As the platform grew in size and influence, Conrad began using it to fight for change in Philadelphia. For instance, back in 2014, when SEPTA made the subways run overnight on weekends, that was in large part thanks to him. Literally the next day, I just got out of bed, drank some coffee, wrote a petition, created the change.org and then promoted it through my channels. And again, it got a lot of signatures pretty quickly. And then that's when Philly Media started picking it up pretty soon after that. Stay tuned to hear how Conrad Benner has crafted his own career by appreciating art. Now, on Philly Who. I'm tired of working for other people and I'm not seeing anything from it. So let me just do my own thing. So Conrad Benner, both literally and figuratively, has built his life by taking the scenic route. In the literal sense, he spends tons of time wandering around Philadelphia on foot. There, he consistently finds new pieces of street art that the rest of us, or at least most of us, or at least I, would miss because they're not found along the routine path that we take every day. Likewise, in a figurative sense, the same is true about Conrad's career. He didn't take on his first corporate job until his mid-twenties, and even then, he kind of wasn't sure where his life was going for a while. But by taking his time to explore and to find what interests him, he came across his love of photoblogging street art. With that, and the timely advent of Instagram, he had found his gem. And what's especially interesting to me about the street art scene is that unlike the highly curated and fairly permanent art commissioned by mural arts and other organizations, street art is, in the words of Conrad, ephemeral. It comes and goes and is consistently adapting to the changing city. And who knows how to spot change in this city better than a guy who has lived his whole life in Fishtown. The Fishtown I grew up in was pretty different than the Fishtown that exists today. It was a poor white working class neighborhood, predominantly white anyway. The bulk of my memory is like the 90s Fishtown, which was just before gentrification. I mean, I remember in high school when Johnny Brenda's was built and I thought that was cool. There was an internet cafe that opened up on Jard Avenue I thought was interesting. So yeah, it was just a different, it was a quieter sort of neighborhood. What was uh, home life like? I had a really warm family growing up. It was just me, my mom and my dad, and I have one older brother who's 12 years older than me. It felt like they were friends, you know, and I was a really good kid. I did good in school. I was never in trouble. So they didn't have any, they didn't have a lot of reason to be strict with me. So growing up, what things were you into? Like, what were your hobbies? 
Yeah, I was an introvert. So I had parents who did push me to kind of step out of my comfort zone. You know, my dad made me play sports. So I played uh, t-ball when I was younger, played hockey for four years. Sounds like you didn't you weren't really interested in the sports? No. My dad got me to play my last year because he bought me some Power Rangers. Like that was our exchange. I said, I'll do it if you get me these Power Rangers. I want it. And he did. And then that was my last year. My interest, I don't know. I was a homebody. I was really introverted. I loved school. I was really good at school. And I kind of just stayed home most of the time. Yeah. So you, you didn't go to college, correct? No, it's, that's a whole story. But no, I should have, but I didn't. Do you, you know? want to tell that story? It's just complicated because to this day, I don't really understand it, but it felt like I didn't have a choice when it was being made. So I was in Catholic school growing up until fourth grade, and then uh, my mom sort of job shifted. She was the breadwinner in my family. So for a couple of reasons, they put me in public school, and I really excelled there. And the way Philly public schools work is you can apply for magnet high schools. So um, these are schools that sort of specialize in different academics or you know other things. There's like a creative arts magnet school. So I applied to a few and got into uh, Central High School, which is like arguably like the best magnet school there is. And I went there for a few years. And then my junior year, about halfway through, I started sleeping in all the time. I was tired all the time. I was sleeping like 16, 17 hours a day, like not waking up for my alarm. It was just this really confusing time. I had doctors who said they were testing me for like mono and other things and they couldn't find anything wrong. So the school and my parents were like, what are you doing right now? Like, what is this? And so I don't know what it was. They later found out that it was a, effectively like what they think was a really severe form of mono that's like super rare. But it was in my system for about two years. So I got kicked out of Central because we didn't follow like the right route in explaining my health issues with them. And they were just like, well, you didn't show up for school all the time, so you're out. Right. And the last ditch effort, I still remember this day, my doctor wrote like this really passionate note. And my parents, you know, drove to the school and we sat there with Dr. Pavel, his name was. And he didn't give a shit. So... I left uh, Central, and uh, I was enrolled in Kensington High School, which is my, my neighborhood school, and I graduated from there. I didn't even attend the school. I was still sick, homebound, um, so I was technically a graduate from Kensington, but it was all homeschooling. The, a teacher from the school would come out like once a week, give me some homework, and I would do the studying there. When time came around to apply for college, I thought, well, fuck, my transcript sucks. I have no money. Like, you know. I don't think my parents could afford a slice of pizza if I went to college, let alone, you know, how some people's parents are able to help pay for the moving expenses, right, and yeah. the books, these other things. So in my mind, the options were like go to school, get incredible loans and still not know what you wanted to do because I had no idea. Or my brilliant idea was to take a year off. But of course, that turned into a, a bunch of years. Because <laughs> right. I did end up, when I was 24, I ended up going to community college for a couple of semesters. Okay. But yeah. So then between 18 and 24, what did you do? Uh, I lived at home for that first year. And then I moved out when I was 19 to an apartment I found on Craigslist with a roommate. Uh, it was like 400 bucks a month. I made a lot of friends in that time. A lot of friends actually who had just graduated um, college, some friends from SCAD, some of my closest friends to this day who moved up to Philadelphia. And so I was around this like really interesting, like artsy community. Um, and it sort of was my way into the art world they would want to go to first friday and i was like what's that and uh -huh. we started going to first friday and it just opened a lot of these doors for me now at no point have i heard about photography so far so at what point did that come into play so in my early 20s i was a freelance writer i was at making time one time 
And this woman I went to elementary school with, her name was Kelly White, bumped into me there. And she's like, hey, I see you out all the time. I'm actually an intern at Celebrity right now. And I have to write a weekly article about like, what's cool and hip? Do you want to help me write it? And I said, sure. And Celebrity was huge back then. Um, They were really one of the first online blogs to really understand the digital space and how it can be used really well. So my name blew up and I was offered other freelance jobs at Philly Weekly, Philly Mag, Philly.com. And I took them. So for a bunch of years, I was a freelance writer and I hated it. You didn't like it? No, I hated it. Well, because especially when you're new, you get told what to write about. They edit the shit out of your your stuff. They come up with new titles and sometimes they even come up with new angles. And it wasn't my strength. Writing was never my strength. So I remember around this time, like Twitter became a thing. Yeah. And back in the early days of Twitter, you could text a photo to a number and it would tweet that photo for you. So like no filters, no anything. And I would text photos from my flip phone, mind you, uh, of like sunsets and different street art pieces I would see. And my boyfriend at the time bought me a like digital point and shoot, like $99 camera for Christmas one year. And I loved it. So that following April, when my tax returns came around, I used the like 400 and some dollars I got on that tax return to buy the cheapest Canon DSLR there was, the Rebel. And it just went from there. What was it that drew you to taking pictures of stuff outside in the city, street art, architecture, things like that? I think for me what it it was were those like ephemeral moments in city life. So, right, sunsets, especially a really good sunset, might only la- you might only get a few of those a year, you know? And with street art, it's the same way. I mean, street art is ephemeral. You know, some pieces of wheat paste can last for years, but a lot of them are, are much more temporary than that. So I think I was just attracted to that sort of ephemerality of Philly life. Yeah. So you had mentioned that, that you used to be a homebody and, or maybe still are, but I've also read that you really, really do love walking around the city. It's kind of like my meditation, I guess, or like my, how I can sort of create motivation for myself as well as like process things. Create motivation. What do you mean by that? Well, for the last four years, I've been doing streets department full time. So whether I'm working from a studio, I had a studio for a couple of years or my home or a coffee shop, like if you're just sitting in front of your computer, it can be hard to like think of new ideas or even to get excited about the ideas you've already come up with. Um, and what I have found is that if I take, you know, an hour long walk, um, I usually come back from that eager to want to sit down and knock some stuff out. Um, or I think up new things on those walks. And so it was on those walks that you started discovering these cool pieces of art or sunsets and snapping pics. I mean, that came out of breaking my legs. So when I was 24, I got into, I was biking up Spring Garden Street. And um, yeah, I got hit head on or like whatever that is. T-boned. T-boned by a van who didn't see me or something. Um, And witnesses stayed behind and the driver of the van, luckily. All the witnesses said that the person was driving through a red light to make a turn. So yeah, I was in the hospital for about six days. I had surgery on my leg. I have a rod in my leg, a bunch of screws. It broke in two places. I was working at Cap Giro at the time, the coffee shop. And gelato shop. So I had absolutely no money and it freaked me out. Um, I had no health insurance. Oh man. That's what that was. I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. So by the time I left the hospital, I asked one of the nurses, um, what I, they thought this would cost me. And they were like at least a hundred thousand. And I just started crying. And then within a couple of weeks, I got a bill from the hospital for $165,000. The unfortunate thing. So this was pre Obama or like right after Obama got elected before Obamacare. The really interesting thing about our healthcare system is that I was almost automatically enrolled in Medicaid or Medicare. Or yeah, yeah. 
And it did help bring my costs down, but it was about a two, three year battle of the Medicaid working with the car insurance company. The whole time I had this $165,000 debt over my head. So my credit is ruined probably forever now. It did end up coming down to a number that I could start to work to pay off. Pennsylvania has the least legal minimum of car insurance a person can own. Um, So it barely covered anything. It was kind of just like throwing, you know, a bottle of water to fire um, did not help at all. But luckily, um, Medicaid did help a lot. And and so, yeah, I, I broke my leg, long story. Yeah, but And then I started walking a lot more. <laughs> I stopped biking and I took Septon and I walked everywhere. So I was walking to and from. By then I was enrolled in community college, taking some classes about art history, taking classes about political science, about anthropology, about writing, just things I was curious in. I don't think I ever thought I was going to get a degree, but I was eager to just be a better citizen in the world. Learn some stuff, yeah. Now, did you start walking because you were like sort of afraid to bike again? Or was it because of your leg injury, you couldn't bike? Yeah, the first time I was afraid to bike again. I also wasn't wearing a helmet, so I had a serious concussion. That's part of the reason I was in the hospital for six days. Usually if you break a leg, you're in there for a couple days and then they dismiss you. But I was like in and out of it. I couldn't like remember things. I was having trouble talking for the first couple of days. So they kept me in there for about a week. Then I was back in Fishtown. I had lived in South Philly for a while, but by then I was back renting in a, a place in Fishtown and walking to and from community college, which is like a good 40-minute walk from Fishtown. It was just so relaxing. So then at what point did it go from something that you just happened to, you know, you stumble across these things, take photos into something where you said, I want to actually start a blog around this? I don't know. Schoolwork was just taking up a lot of my time. And I was working full-time, going to school part-time, uh, and trying to freelance. So I just decided to cut the freelance work out. Um, I wasn't making a ton of money from it, and it wasn't really fun for me. Stories I wanted to write about weren't getting picked up, and sometimes stories I would write would get edited in ways that I didn't love or get new titles. And most importantly, this was back probably right 2010, I'd give them photos that I thought were really cool. And back then, like Philly.com or whatever the online publication was, the photos would be like these tiny little things and in galleries, and I thought it was so silly. Um, so I thought, Hey, if I'm going to do all this work, I might as well do it for myself and do it for free for myself and just see if I can make something of it. Did you think at that point that it could grow into what, what it has? Definitely. When I started, I just thought I want to start my own thing. I'm tired of working for other people and I'm not seeing anything from it. So let me just do my own thing. So what were the blog posts like then? Yeah, well, the initial idea for Streets Department was to be kind of a, a like sister to celebrity. So it was going to be a sort of like my take on the city. I was going to write about music and art and events and politics and all of it. And then I was getting a drink with my friend and she was just like, who the fuck gives a shit about what you think about anything? And I was like, okay. Was <laughs> Ouch, like, but all right. You're right. Um, <laughs> and I realized that I... Even if did people did give a shit, like there was already those spaces, right? Yeah. So like what space could I create that didn't exist already that matched my interest with my ability? And actually, I literally went through, I had like iPhoto, I went through the thousands of photos I had one night and I realized that the bulk of them were street art. I looked at Philly's sort of media, online media scene at that time and realized that one, there weren't any blogs about street art in Philadelphia. If you will, there was a hole in the market that I could create something for and I ran at it. Did you have the name Streets Department from the get-go? Like, how did no. you come up with that? Actually, that was one of my first ideas. And then my another friend said, it sounds like you're, say, you're saying, like, take it to the streets. And it was kind of corny or, like, whatever. Um, so I went around a few times. I had set a deadline for myself. I was going to launch the first week of January. So 
I made this decision in the first week of December. So I was running at a very tight timeline to launch this. Wow. So at what point in the streets department journey did Instagram come into play? Was it really around when you first started? I, you know, I don't remember. I launched in t- uh, January of 2011, uh, so eight years ago. And very quickly, I was offered a job at Quaker City Mercantile, which is a, a, an advertising agency, a marketing agency here in the city. They were across the street from the coffee shop that I worked at. So I you know, served a lot of those people yeah. every day. And they were just starting to hire people to help with social media for some of the brands that they worked for. Yeah. And they knew I ran this blog and it had got a lot of press from the start. So I had a bit of credibility that they they thought I knew what I was doing and I'm glad they did. So I was asked to interview for a position there and I got the position. And when I did get, ultimately get that job, I bought an iPhone and um, quickly after that got Instagram. Yeah. As you started posting on, on Instagram, did you find that took off quickly? Like, did you find that you... Got- oh, I knew it was going to be my thing. I mean, it was the first social media platform that was image-based and I was a photo blogger. I mean, part of the reason, again, why I started my blog was I was so frustrated with the big media outlets in Philly, not prioritizing photos in their stories. So I would sell them a story, the text would be, you know, the bulk of it. And then if there were photos, they'd be at the top and in a gallery, right? And I knew, you know, there were other blogs, national and otherwise, that use photos in better ways, I thought, right? Like big 600 pixels by whatever, 400 pixels. And then the text is still there, but you scroll for it because people like visuals, right? I mean, visuals help support stories. And in the case of street art, a lot of times visual is a story, right? You can just look at the visual and if you want to read the text and learn more about it or who it was or if there's an artist statement, you can, but seeing it is really the story. So when Instagram came out and I joined it, I knew it would be a big thing for me. And so I invested a lot of time and effort into making it a platform that I used well. I thought of it like a bit like a job. I mean, even though I, was, I had a full-time job, by then I was working full-time at Quaker City and that's, I don't know if anyone's worked in marketing, but that's like 9 a.m. to 6.30, 7 p.m. every single day. Every single lunch, I would go across the street to Cabajiro with my computer and work on Streets Department. And most nights, I would go home and work on Streets Department. Let alone, you know, an artist would text me, hey, I'm doing this install, or I just did this install, so I'd have to run around the city to photograph it. Because that was another important thing for me, too, was I didn't want the blog to be a hodgepodge of different images, different qualities, different angles, different eyes. I wanted it to be consistently one thing, which was, you know, my eye. How did you start to see traction within the art community itself? Very quickly, actually. So I start again, I started the blog in January of 2011. By March, I was out photographing installations with artists. I mean, I think what it was, was because no one else was talking about this, there weren't a whole lot of people talking about the street art in Philadelphia. So when street artists saw someone trying to do that, they supported me. And they taught me so much. I mean, I would get coffee with artists and they'd explain to me different things about their personal history or the history of, of street art in Philly. I own up to the fact that I started the blog as a fanboy blog. And the whole this whole process has been a learning process for me. To this day, I'm still learning. Like learning what? About the street art scene, about the rules, about the people, about the ethics, about who the artists are, about what different people, you know... One big thing I had to learn from this very quickly was, okay, if I'm going to go out and photograph an artist installing because they've invited me, I have to ask them, do they want their face involved? When I write their article, do they want me to mention their name? Do they want me to link anywhere? Ask these questions really explicitly because some artists are open about who they are, some street artists, and some aren't. Some are more anonymous for various reasons. 
did you feel any in terms of sort of more macro responsibilities as you started to gain more influence and more attention? Was there any pressure as it kind of grew? Yeah, one responsibility I felt it, when my Instagram started taking off, when I got 10,000 followers on Instagram by like 2013 or something, which was huge back then, I did start to feel a sense of responsibility. And I one thing I did very early on was I started a petition to have SEPTO run their trains 24-7. So every job, before the marketing job, every job I've ever had would work late into night. And so I started a petition to run the trains 24-7. It made no sense to me why they couldn't. And the petition got a few thousand signatures in the first couple of weeks, and it blew up. It got a lot of media attention. The question was brought to SEPTA. SEPTA said, this is actually something we're looking at because you know we want to increase services as we get increased ridership. And at that point, they had a few years of increased ridership. And they experimented with 24-hour service on the weekends for about a year, and it was really successful. Um, Ridership went up over the night out buses by 20, 30, 40%. On holiday weekends, it was up 150%. So now it's indefinite, um, and I'm really proud of that. How was the decision-making process? Like, Did did you say, I want to try and start a movement here? So you said you started a petition. Was it something like, well, maybe you know I can get this to happen? Or was it something like you just kind of posted... Uh, with a hashtag and you you noticed other people agreeing and thought, how did that come to be that you started to put this into motion? Because all that to say, like, I don't think people realize how much power that they have with stuff like this. I mean, that petition and its success is, I think, helped make me a lot less cynical about how possible change is, for sure. And that's definitely pushed me to be a much more political person, generally speaking. But the petition started because I was at a First Friday event with a few friends and I was hailing a cab. As you said, there weren't Ubers back then. And one of my friends was like, let's just take the train. It's like 1130. And I thought, oh, yeah, it's not that late. Oh, wait, why aren't it? This would be nice to do on a regular weekend. Or if we went out for maybe two more drinks, you know, because the train stopped at 12 something. Yeah. And it was re- literally the next day. I just got out of bed, drank some coffee, wrote a petition, created the change.org and then promoted it through my channels. And again, it got a lot of signatures pretty quickly. And then that's when Philly Media started picking it up pretty soon after that. So once that sort of movement came and went, how did you feel looking back on, on seeing the actual progress that had been made? Yeah, it was stunning. I mean, again, it made me really appreciate living in Philadelphia, I think. We're a huge city, right? We're the fifth largest city in America. And yet a couple of people with, with an idea and a petition can push one of our biggest institutions to make changes, right? It made me a lot less cynical about how possible change is, um, as well as it made me reflect on the importance of using the platform I'd built to not only celebrate and highlight the artists that we have, but to use it to affect change in civic life as best I could. Would you say that the the street art that you highlight sort of has this theme that you've developed in your platform of making change, of improving lives, or of just making statements? Is that something that you kind of look for in the art that you find? Or would you say that it's intrinsic in all art? Like, what are your thoughts? There is more political street art for sure now. Um, Murals and other larger forms of public art take years and lots of funding and oftentimes can't be political just because of how that funding comes in, whether it's 501c3 or whatever. Um, So street art can be, you know, an artist can see a tweet from the president one day stay up that night with some coffee or wine or whatever, do a piece around how dumb our president is and put it up the next day. And, you know, we live in a city where if the community wants it to stay up, it'll stay up. And if they don't, it'll come down. There are plenty of ways to take down street art, including 311. And the artists nowadays are working 
in really smart ways. They're going over construction materials and going on abandoned houses. So I think that's why a street art blog, which is what I am in Philly, can have so many followers and so much interest in Philly because it's not, it's vandalism in name only. This is not, if you're mad at someone putting a wheat paste on an abandoned home, be mad at the person who left that home to be abandoned or who won't sell it to people who can afford it at a rate that they can afford. Don't be mad at the wheat paster. At what point did did Streets Department become something that you considered doing full-time? In 2014, Instagram made me a suggested user. So Instagram's platform was run a bit more like YouTube back then, where they had curators at Instagram headquarters who would handpick content creators and promote them across the platform. So in 2014, I was promoted as a suggested user across the platform twice, and I went from that 10, 11,000 followers I had to originally like 90,000 and now 140,000 where I'm at now. And once you hit 100,000 followers, you start getting emails from bigger brands who want to work with you on sponsored content for your Instagram. So I did that for about a year while still working at QCM. And um, by the end of that year, I was making more money on different ads I was doing than I was making in my paycheck. And I thought, okay, this is a unique opportunity to see if I can support the blog um, and support myself through advertising while I pursue this this effort full time, uh, and see what I could see what I can build from it. Were you nervous at whether it would work? You know, I wasn't. I think because I've had such an unusual career and life as it was, not going to school, not getting into like a corporate job until my late twenties. That I don't know. I have this long view of life. I felt like why not roll the dice on this? And if I wanted to get back into advertising or back into a, a desk job, I'm sure I could find a way to do it. So. One of the more recent activism meets art type things that I've seen Street Spartan get involved with is track takeover. Can you tell me about that, what that was? Yeah, there have been for years artists in Philadelphia and across the country asking the question about advertising in public spaces. And there have been a number of projects around it as well. Um, and it's just this question of, you know, the public space is ours, right? We own it. It's the public space. It's a public asset. So why are we selling it to advertisers to not our benefit, right? And something I say a lot on my walks and tours is that I don't think advertisers would spend billions of dollars every year on outdoor advertising if it didn't affect the ways that we think, the ways that we feel, and the ways that we behave. That's so critical. If you on your walk to work you see seven ads for Dove, you are statistically more likely to buy Dove, right? So... Track Takeover started with Trash Can Takeover last year. And it started with, I saw that the city had bought a bunch more of these silly trash cans that no one in the world likes. And every city's controller has decided are not worth the money that they cost. I mean, we're sold these trash cans on that they'll use less maintenance. They're going to crunch a lot of the trash. So it'll be, they won't get full so quickly and they're, they're green, right? But after having them for a lot of years in a lot of cities, reports and, and studies come out that one, they don't work half the time. <laughs> they don't crunch as much trash. They don't require less maintenance and they're not as green and they still cost about like $5,000 a trash can and require a ton of maintenance. So to subsidize that cost, because right, it's $5,000 versus whatever a bin would cost normally, the city has decided to sell advertising on the sides of these trash cans. So we are selling space in our public space to advertisers for absolutely nothing. And these trash cans are in your face, right? They're at every intersection. You see them all the time and they're eye level with kids. And it's not worth it, in my opinion, to sell our public space like that, especially 
on these trash cans that I don't think we need. They're not green. They don't do the job they said they would, and they cost way too much money. Um, so yeah, Alan Butkovitz, the last city controller in Philly, did a did a report on it saying that this is not worth it. And, but for some reason, we keep buying them. Oh, they're still there, yeah. So I wrote a blog post about that, about how silly I thought they were and how bad I thought these specific Gary Barbera ads were because they did like a whole buyout of the whole center city region. And Brendan Lowry of Peopledelphia ended up working with City Fitness to buy some of those ad spaces back. And I worked with them as a media partner to help identify some artists. It was an open call as well. And to document changing these trash cans into art. And we did a similar thing with Track Takeover. It was Brendan Lowry again. You know, he's the the head of this, this project. Uh, with City Fitness, who is the funder, they bought all the ads in the Walnut Locust Station. We gave it over to 30 artists. And for the next year, anytime they're in between advertising segments across the SEPTA platform, those arts will go in. So that basically means there's lots of times when there aren't ads in these things for whatever reason, or worse yet, some advertising company will buy 30 days, but because SEPTA doesn't have uh, the next 30 days full, we'll just leave those ads in for an extra 30 days. When that's the case, we'll fill those with art when there's empty time slots. So instead of me seeing a movie poster for a movie that came out three you know, months ago, <laughs> it'll be art. In 2017, you launched a podcast. That's right. Why did you start a podcast? The podcast started for a few reasons, but basically I was just interested in using my platform to talk about more things. So the blog is pretty specifically about art and creativity in public space. And that can be broad enough to talk about parks and stuff and, and design and architecture even sometimes. But the core of it is street art. Um, I just wanted to create another platform where I could talk with politicians and talk with city planners um, and talk with artists as well, but talk with more people who I thought had a role in changing the world around us um, and who I think... in innately were creative so in our first season we talked with uh, council member Helen Gim for example who I think um, is using her position of power really creatively right she's using social media and her years of activism in Philadelphia to rally people in the city around really important issues how has that platform proved different from the pre-existing platforms you've worked with again the podcast is just a way for me to explore creativity in a wider sense so again the creativity of politicians activists city planners business owners um it's just a wider swath of of people from philadelphia and beyond um so again yeah the the blog talks about art and creativity in the public space and it's hyper local it talks about philadelphia whereas with the podcast i'm taking a national international view so i hate when i get asked this question so feel free to just deflect if the listeners wanted to check out your show, what's the one episode you'd recommend? Well, that really depends on the listener. I mean, that's there are people I've interviewed who are talking about city government. We just had Rebecca Reinhardt on. Yeah. And then our Eric Thomas was my first interview ever. Yeah. Um, it was like eight in the morning. I was so tired. I was so nervous. And he is hilarious and so thoughtful. He is a black queer man and he he's religious. So I thought he was a really interesting person to talk to. Not only is he funny, right? He's a writer for a big national magazine, but his husband is also a pastor. Um, and he talks in our episode, not just about like celebrity culture and, and political pop culture, but also, um, you know, his journey of growing up religious, leaving the church as a lot of us queer kids do because we're pushed out. And in his case, coming back to the church for various reasons, which you should listen to. It's a really incredible episode. He's an incredible person. And I'm so glad I know him and that I was lucky enough to think of him to have to, to be the first guest. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I haven't uh, heard any of season one, so I'm looking yeah. forward to going back and checking it out. So I have a couple questions that I ask every guest to just to get different perspectives through the different answers. 
What would you say is a common misconception about you? A lot of people think I'm a street artist. That's very nice of people to think that, but I have no artistic bone in my body like that. I mean, I'm a photographer. Right. Hopefully someone thinks I'm a good photographer. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not a street artist. Yeah. So you have to say, I'm sorry, but it wasn't, yeah. that wasn't me. <laughs> there was a minute, Kid Hazo, who's one of our, he describes himself as a comedic street artist. Um, when he popped up about five years ago, um, he's anonymous. People thought I was him, and I thought that was the kindest thing you could say to me because he's brilliant yeah. and his installations are often laugh out loud funny. Um, he ticketed the PPA one time with a big exaggerated uh, ticket um, to a car that was parked illegally, a PPA car a that was PPA parked car, illegally. That's great. Even the PPA guy came up and just laughed. He was like, can I have this? And we were like, sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh my or God. he was like, sure. But yeah, I'm not a street artist. Yeah, that's funny. If you could send a message to yourself in the past, butterfly effect aside, at any point, what would you say and, and at what point would you send it? After I broke my leg, I went through a couple of months of like what I can only describe as depression. Um, I'm lucky to have that not affect me as much as I know it affects other people. So I, I don't say that lightly. But yeah, I was in a very dark place and I was 24. I had absolutely no money to my name. I couldn't afford rent because I you know, wasn't making money. Well, actually, the Cap Giro did end up paying me my regular salary during that the three months I couldn't work because they felt bad about it but they didn't have to do that they didn't have to do that and if they didn't I would have um not been able to pay rent I would have got kicked out of my house and I would have been living with my parents for years or you know until I got back on my feet but it, that was the only thing that saved me I was dead broke and at that point $165,000 in debt for at least a couple months until they figured that out and then years until it was paid off but anyway yeah I was in a very dark place I didn't know what I was doing with my life so I'd probably go back to that person and just say calm down <laughs> life has a funny way of figuring itself out and just strap in because i'm 33 now and i feel like i've lived five lives and i can only imagine it's going to continue to feel that way um and i think life is very long if you're lucky enough for it to be long and you can do a lot in it and you shouldn't feel so rushed to figure everything out so quickly even if you're 24 you've never gone to college and you don't know what the fuck you're doing that's fine because um, you can have an idea tomorrow that can change your whole life or you can get an email tomorrow or you can bump into your friend like Kelly White that can change your whole life. Shit happens. Just be open to those possibilities and be eager to just chill. Yeah. Not eager to figure it all out. I love that. What would you say is the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia today? We are the biggest, poorest city in America. We have injustice economically at levels that no other city in America is dealing with. It's absurd it's insane and it's wrong it's unjust and we are a city that is growing and we need to make sure that that growth is being shared equally with everyone here it's so simple to me we have a city council in my opinion who are super well connected now and who i think are living in sort of a scarcity mindset mm. right so philadelphia was losing population for decades in the last century but it hasn't been losing population for a while now. Right. Um, businesses are moving here. And that's not just a trend with Philadelphia. That's a trend internationally. Cities yeah. are growing. I don't think we need our city council to be so scared of these corporations and these wealthy people. I think we need a city council and a mayor who hold these big corporations and wealthy individuals to account and tax them appropriately. Because there's people in the city that need services that they're not getting now because we're refusing to have a, a tax system that benefits the majority of Americans, yeah. the majority of Philadelphians. I'm curious, 
you know, you being somebody who's born and raised in Fishtown yeah. and your family's from there, your generations, what does you and your families look at the gentrification that's happened these days? Yeah. I don't know what I think. I talked to my mom and dad about it recently. My dad hates it. He thinks that, that the new people look down on him. But uh, my mom likes it. I think my mom has always thought of herself as more cosmopolitan than my dad did. So she really likes it. She likes being able to walk to a coffee shop and, and get a bagel and stuff. But my dad's not a fan. And I'm kind of a, a mixture of the both of them. There's parts of me that, you know, when I go to Belgrade Street, I grew up on Belgrade Street between Norris and Susquehanna. When I was growing up, there was Marge across the street who would sit on her stoop. There was uh, Pat and Marge on, the, on our side next to my parents who would make candies and cookies and give it out. They were a lesbian couple. Give it out to the kids all the time in the summer. And, you know, I don't know. It just felt different. And now the neighbors don't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. My parents know their two next door neighbors, but not a lot of the new kids that are moving in up and down the block. It's just a different feel. It's, it's part of it's generational. I think that, you know, I'm a part of that generation, right? Like we are on our phones a lot. We're busy as hell. We're yeah. working fucking so much that we often don't make those connections with the people on our block because yeah. we're just so fucking busy as it is. But um, just a different feel. So part of me misses that sort of culture. But then part of me likes that if I am making dinner and I'm like, oh, fuck, I need a tomato. I can go two blocks to River Wards and get a tomato. And it's run by a really great company, really great guy. I mean, Vincent, we should have small businesses like that. So it sucks that it took gentrification for that to be able to happen. Again, I think that's that's an issue of economic incentives and uh, different tax structures that would make it possible to have a neighborhood that can have those resources before it ever gentrifies or if it ever gentrifies just because there's people who live there. We should have grocery stores in every neighborhood. You know, I also don't think this world is black and white. I don't think... I don't believe in that like didn'ac view of the world. I mean, so it is what it is, and I'm just trying to deal with it. You live in Fishtown now? Yeah, I live three blocks from my mom. That's great. And three blocks from my brother and his wife. They li- we all live yeah, yeah. there. I just was very, very eager to hear uh, your thoughts on that because just kind of walking around, you can feel that tension sometimes. I think people can help if you're new to a neighborhood, if you're new to Fishtown or, or to a neighborhood, like talk to your neighbors. Go talk to your neighbors. Every... Every old neighborhood in Philly has the the dude or the woman who sits on their stoop to go talk to them. Don't just walk by and say hi. Go sit out there with them for 10 minutes one day. If you see them on the stoop, say, hey, I'm going to the corner store. Like, do you need anything? You know, like think about your neighbors. I mean, I think that's one big thing you can do to stop it. Like don't set up these these walls, uh, these social walls. Talk to people. Yeah. What excites you most about Philadelphia today? We live in this unique time where there is this this change happening, but there's also this like political will, it seems like, where if you shout loud enough, it does seem like city council and city hall listens yeah. and city government agencies. So like the SEPTA petition is one example of that. But um, yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity here um, and a lot of opportunity for change and it's just we have to make sure that the change goes in our direction by our i mean you know the majority of us the majority of philadelphians and you know for those who are the most vulnerable if you could get one message to every philadelphian be it a tweet plane in the sky email text billboard whatever Mm -hmm. one message that every single philadelphian would be able to receive and ponder what would you say Think about your public space when you walk around the city when you're going to school when you're going to work look around what do you want to see it's ours We own it. It's ours, you know? I don't think we need a million cooks in the kitchen, but I think we can if there's masses of us who reject the idea of advertising in our public space. I think we can get rid of the advertising in our public space, and that's a huge thing. 
For more on Conrad, you can head to podphillywho.com forward slash Conrad, or check out the links in the show notes. Definitely be sure to check out his podcast, Streets Department. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and follow along on Twitter and Instagram at podphillywho. And for Philly Who news and announcements, and just to keep up with the stories of previous guests on the show, you can join the email newsletter via podphillywho.com forward slash email. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode's associate producers are Angela Gervasi and Bryce Lobel, with editing by Max Graham, music by Lee Rosevere, and artwork by Lauren Carhart. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Till next time. <laughs>